0: Hi there and welcome to our show the shit no one tells you about writing i'm bianca Murray, and i'm joined by carly waters and cc lira from ps literary agency we'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual books with Hook segment after which we'll go to today's guest Welcome to today's episode of Books with Hooks. We
2: have Just Carly and Cece today. We are missing our beloved Bianca, and we will have her back
3: with us next week. So, Cece, will you start by reading the first query letter? Let's do it. Dear Cece Lira, my name is Irene Lee, and I thought you might be interested in my thriller manuscript. This could save me. Complete at seventy thousand words. It is dark, and rich people get in trouble. Which I hope might still be a manuscript wish list for you. I believe this novel would appeal broadly to people who enjoy thrillers, particularly women, and a target subset audience is the people who annually visit Northern Michigan resort towns. Query. Ruth Walker's life changes for the better when, as a journalist, she receives a coveted invite to cover the infamous Sally Hargrove's release party for a product that reverses the effects of aging on one's skin. Unfortunately, the release party, set on the sugar and sand shores of Lake Michigan, goes treacherously wrong when Sally Hargrove's lifeless body is found in the woods, yards away from the party guests. Growing up, Ruth's grandmother hung Frame magazine photos of brilliant and wealthy Sally Hargrove above their avocado green couch, claiming that years ago, she and Sally were best friends. Ruth never believed her, but hours after the death of Sally Hargrove, Ruth discovers someone hacked into her social media account and posted an image of Sally Hargrove lying dead in the woods. Ruth is forced to consider that her grandmother was telling the truth and that truth might have everything to do with her invitation to the release party and the image posted on her social media account. Instead of going to the police, Ruth, horribly in debt, working for a dreadful boss and hoping to make a career change into freelance writing, publishes a blog post rehashing the events. The post goes viral and Ruth soon learns... Other guests, including Ms. Hargrove's daughters, social media accounts were also hacked, with the same image posted on their accounts. Two days after Sally Hargrove is killed, the body of one of her daughters washes up on the shores of Lake Michigan, and everyone is quick to assume that those whose social media accounts were hacked are the next victims of the murder. All signs indicate the assumption is valid. The more Ruth tries to uncover the truth, the more she realizes the past may be the key to Ruth's inclusion in this terrible ordeal. And if she does not uncover the truth about her family's connection to Sally Hargrove, she may be next on the murder's hit list. Short bio. A little bit about me is that I live in Judo, Texas, and work as an advising supervisor in adult education. Growing up, I lived in eight different states, but spent every summer in Traverse City, swimming in Lake Michigan. In the past, I have taught ESL in Rome, Italy, and Aguascalientes, Mexico. When I'm not working, I'm usually spending time with my five-year-old daughter and husband. Thank you for your time and consideration.
2: All right. Thank you, Cece. So tell us how many words it is and what you thought about that query letter. So this is
3: clocking in at 478 words. I'll begin by saying that I will always, and I do mean always, want stories where rich people get in trouble, whether dark in the vein of Eliza James, good rich people, or light like Schitt's Creek. I'm always here for it. So my first note, where are the comps? We need the comps, please. And in terms of plot paragraphs, I love that the inciting incident is super clear and very compelling. An unexpected death, right? We're immediately curious. I also really like that the way the protagonist got involved with the inciting incident was interesting. Someone hacking into her social media account. So great job. But I noticed that the mysterious death is only referred to as a murder at the very end of the plot paragraphs. I would bring that up. It raises the stakes. It's not just... A death, it's a murder. And one more big picture note, I did not understand the connection between the hack and the protagonist leaping to all of a sudden believing her grandmother. That didn't feel organic to me. By the time I got to the end of the query letter and read how the plot escalates, we have another death and the stakes for the protagonist. Her life is in danger. I, again, did not understand the connection between the past and the present. It, Like I said, it did not feel organic. Here's why I'm bringing this up. In general, in storytelling, when something doesn't feel organic, that creates a plausibility issue. And plausibility issues, especially in thrillers, they remove us from the story. They affect our ability to suspend disbelief. So if there's any way to make that connection clearer, I would work on that. I would work on tightening. The author and our Kofi subscribers will notice my line notes with specific questions, as well as a few more minor notes that we just don't have time for right now because I don't want Carly to do helicopter hands today. But yeah, it's been, it's been a pleasure to critique this query letter. Thank you. Thank
2: you for that, Cece. Now we're going to move on to the pages. Give us a quick summary of what's going on and what you thought.
3: So we begin with the prologue. The protagonist is at a party when Sally is found dead. She's checking her phone, and there's a comment on her social media account that reads, is this a joke? Except the comment is in response to a picture that she did not post. The picture is of Sally's dead body. A man sees her on her phone and asks her if there's news. She responds that there isn't, and through interiority, she shares that she knows what she has to do. Then we go to chapter one. The protagonist is not feeling well, but she's still driving, headed to the party. She arrives at the swanky location, reminding herself that soon, She'll be able to afford a better car. She'll be able to afford paying her bills. A person called Mateo texts her, and it becomes clear that Mateo is apprehensive about her being at the party, whereas she's more of a risk taker. And then she begins talking to people, adopting her charming journalist persona. All right, so what did you think of those pages? So big picture note, the prologue right now didn't really work for me. Like there just wasn't enough interiority. There wasn't enough emotionality. For the bits that we did get access to her psyche and her heart, the calibration felt off. So the protagonist just found out that someone posted a picture of a dead woman in her account. Like that is a shocking thing, right? Like I feel like most people would be shocked. And yet we don't see her feeling shocked. We don't see her processing that information in real time, going through the emotionality, practicing skepticism, disbelief, running through specific questions through her mind. Here's an example of a question that most people would be asking themselves, who has my password, right? Maybe nobody has her password. Maybe somebody does, but that's just a thought that would occur to a lot of people I find who had access to her phone, right? Like could somebody have grabbed her phone from her purse? But again, these are just examples. What I wanted was more interiority, more emotionality. Right now we're getting told that she did not post the picture. There's a line that says she did not post it, but we're not experiencing the shock with her. And I really needed that to feel that tension. I'm also unclear on whether the protagonist found out that the person who died was Sally through the picture or not, because they knew about a dead body before the hack, but I don't know if the identity was known to her. And I kind of wanted to know that it would be okay for me not to know that it was Sally at all in the prologue, but since we do know that it was through the hack, I wanted to know like where she found out the information. So I would revise the prologue. I would flesh out the interiority, flesh out the emotionality, add curiosity seeds. We talk a lot about prologues on the show, and oftentimes listeners think that prologues are a no-no. So I will actually go on a limb here and say, I think that in a thriller like this, a prologue would be great. So I am pro-keeping a prologue. I would just work on this prologue. I think that in a thriller, a prologue that starts with the discovery of a dead body can work really well, but only if the dance between withholding and revealing is perfectly choreographed just to really make us feel super curious. And in terms of chapter one, it's a little slower than I would have hoped. I don't think we need the drive to the party. Like, why are we seeing her in the car? She's alone. It makes it really difficult for there to be tension. It's really well-written, but I'm thinking to myself, can't we already be at the party? Because that just seems more exciting. She'll get to talk to people. She'll get to interact, especially because when she arrives at the party, she's going to be surprised, right? And surprise is such a great way to practice disruption and make the reader feel really curious. So those are my notes. I hope they were helpful.
2: All right. Thank you, Cece. I actually have a prologue to talk about today, too. So we're going to be heavy on prologues today.
3: So speaking of which, will you read us your first query letter?
2: Dear Cece, I saw on your wish list that you're interested in stories which expose an unseen side of things we think we know. And for this reason, I would like to submit my adventure, parenting, slash travel, memoir, You, Me, and The Coup, a memoir of motherhood and more for your consideration. Completed 95,000 words, it tells the story of my rather extraordinary first year as a mother, a year defined not by my baby's milestones, but rather by a military coup, the COVID-19 pandemic and six months separation from my husband a year through which I was as dependent on my newborn emotional support baby, TM trademarked, for strength as he was on me for survival. It will appeal to fans of the insightful, engaging writing style of A Bit of a Stretch by Christ Atkins and The Vicarious Wanderlust Satisfied by Margot Weinstein's Jalangeland. Yangon was my adopted home for seven wonderful years. I met my husband Dylan there, had my baby Jasper there, and even enjoyed waiting out the pandemic there. But on the 1st of February 2021, everything changed when Myanmar's brutal military ousted the elected government, throwing the country into turmoil and our fledgling family's future there into question. Only two months into motherhood, suddenly I wasn't thinking about nappy changes and sleep patterns. I was wondering if it was safe to go outside and if not when and how we should leave the country and where would we go? Hampered by ever-changing global travel restrictions and border closures, trapped by complications with Jasper's passport and with on-the-ground violence escalating as fast as the local medical system was collapsing, Dylan and I scrambled to find an alternative life to the one we had built in myanmar the answer came in the form of an unexpected job offer but an under-researched idea to move to mumbai saw jasper and i stuck in the uk indefinitely while dylan struggled to set up a new life for us all in india just as i was beginning to lose faith in the india plan we found a convoluted route to a reunion via australia i am an experienced marketing and communications professional originally from old jersey now living in india with my amazing husband and a rambunctious two-year-old When I am not writing, I'm usually running, often after Jasper, swimming, or playing tennis. I have trademarked the term emotional support baby in the UK for use in merchandise, should the marketing plan allow. Attached are my first five pages. Please let me know if I can send you the full manuscript. Thank you, Millie Ray.
3: That was an amazing journey. What did you think of that query letter?
2: Okay, so this one clocked in at 437 words, so a little bit on the long side for us. There's a lot to unpack here, so we'll start at the top. First of all, the title, right? So we have Me, You and the Coup, right? Really cute little rhyme. I think that's really I think that's really strong. So, but the second part is a memoir of motherhood and more. The and more is really vague, especially because there's so much going on. More is doing a lot of work here. So I think we just need a memoir of motherhood cut off the more, or we need you need to tell us a little bit about what more is. Next, I think the second paragraph, we have our word count, the the comps and all the explanations. I think you need to tell us a bit more about where you are because- obviously we learned a little bit later, it was, it was Myanmar, but I don't, I don't know. I feel like right away when you say a military coup, I think we need to know where it is. So I would say where you are right at the beginning. I really like the line about, I was as dependent on my newborn emotional support baby trademark for strength as he was on me for survival. I just think that was, it's really strong. I think I see a lot of motherhood memoirs, right? I get pitched a lot of motherhood memoirs and I'm always open to them because I think there's so many different versions of how people experience motherhood and and I want to I want to read them all. And this has a pretty excellent hook, right? There's not only the layer of the pandemic but also the coup, right? So we we have a lot of layers here and, and I like that survival element, right? About how you kind of need each other and to, to get through something and it's such a beautiful love letter to your child, right? As as they grow up to know that you two needed each other through this experience. I think that was that was really beautiful. Another thing I want to talk about memoir as a whole is the idea of memoirs needing a beginning, a middle, and an end, right? So I think the 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 another great thing about motherhood memoirs is that there's a very clear beginning, right? Where it's beginning either conception, the pregnancy, or the birth of the baby, right? Like we have a very distinct beginning point, a starting point for motherhood memoirs. I think that's why people are drawn to writing them as well. And then the middle obviously can be whatever that experience was, but the end, the end of a motherhood memoir is always the trickiest part because you're a mother forever right so you're a mother for your whole life so where where does the book end and and what is that experience of ending and the way that you ended the query you have just as I was beginning to lose all faith in the India plan we found a convoluted route to a reunion via Australia am I supposed to think that everything was kind of resolved as you guys came together or like I'm I'm supposed to think obviously that the book ends here when you guys find your way back to each other but I'm not really getting a sense of this of an ending other than safety right you're moving from the coup obviously to a safer place to to raise your child out of that kind of military unrest but what is the end I just didn't really get a strong sense of what is the end so where does the book end and why does it end here that's the big piece of the puzzle we're missing here so and it might be very clear you know in the book but for the sake of the query it needs to be much stronger. So that's my my big note here. The the last little bit I wanted to touch on was the the emotional support baby for merchandising. I think this is really cute. I I just don't know if it belongs in the query letter. I'm very torn about this. But because you mentioned like you you write like trademarked in the pitch, I feel like you want us to know that. So if you want to leave it in, I think that's fine. It's just it was a bit of a question mark for me.
3: That was so interesting. I think this is the first time I've ever heard someone tell me that they trademarked a term in a query letter. So that that was really cool. So what did you think of those pages?
2: All right, so I'll do a quick summary first. So our main character tells us it's February 1st, 2021. The Myanmar military deposed the leaders of the elected government before they could be sworn into parliament the next day. She talks about the mix between the kind of mundane life of raising a baby versus being worried for her life and kind of what a coup looks like and what the reality of that is. Mila, our author, tells us about her father-in-law who lives locally and how he's been through coups before in Thailand. And then she kind of builds up to the panic of the coup and the military actually turns off their internet which is where they get all their news. But her husband isn't as as concerned as she is. And we're kind of learning about that tension there.
3: And that's where we stop. And how did the execution go?
2: I think we're definitely beginning in the
3: right place.
2: And I think what this author does really, really well is balances a couple different things. So I think one of the issues with a lot of motherhood memoirs is they focus on the mundaneness of, of motherhood, right? There's the wonderful thing about your baby learning to roll and grab things and stand up and, and all of those things. And that leads to kind of a, ultimately kind of some, some boring memoirs. But this one is interesting because it has the coup, right? So it's like, not only are, are we talking about like changing diapers and running out for diapers and on the, all of that kind of basic human life stuff, but there's this tension and the tension is, captured in the actual writing, because we'll have a sentence about everything that's happening kind of and how intense it is. And then the two-month-old baby Jasper is asleep on her, right? So everything here is really thoughtful in terms of the juxtaposition between that intensity and the mundaneness. So I think this project has a lot of potential because of the way the author is kind of balancing that and executing that. One thing I, I think needs to be a lot more clear is the concept of time, right? So we're told like on the day, obviously when things start, but there's a lot of description of like what happens when a coup occurs, right? It's like, everybody's running to the ATMs, taking all their money out. It says like converting cash to property, burying gems in the, in the garden, you know, stocking up on peanut oil and rice, like all the things you're supposed to do, but we never really get a sense of how long that plan is supposed to take, how long it might take them to do something like that. Do they start to kind of go through the wheels and the motions of how long it would take them to, to go through those motions. So that's the piece, the timeline piece I think is, is really missing here. And it could just be because this is the first day of the coup and they haven't wrapped their head around it. But if their minds are going to start to spin, especially our our narrator and our main character, if our mind's going to start to spin, we need to get a really strong sense of how life might play out like this. Another thing I wasn't really clear about was her husband's disposition so he kind of like is the one that goes out and and gets diapers and and comes back but we're never really told how he feels at any point like is he worried is he calm like some the way that he's talking because there's dialogue here it says she asks what are people saying and he says not really you know a few people I recognize none of our friends one of my old colleagues was there and he said there'd been a coup and then he responds as he drops the nappies beside the sofa and comes to sit with Jasper and me so there's a sense of calm but I think if there is a sense of calm then our main character has to recognize the calm right and say like oh that's whatever like it's interesting that he's he's not upset if he's not upset then I shouldn't be upset right like I think that interchange of emotions is missing here for the sake of trying to create some dialogue between the characters which in memoir dialogue is always recreated from our mind nobody like tape records their whole life and so I felt like this author was leaning a bit more on trying to create dialogue to make it seem more novel like when really with memoir I really wanted to know more about the interchange of their emotions and, and how they're kind of playing off each other and in and, and a marriage with a new baby, like how they're all feeling about it. It was much more about how they were actually going to make it through their day to day on a very tactical level, which, and if it's going to be tactical, I think you need to observe to the reader that this is, this is quite tactical.
3: I love those notes. Thank you so much.
2: All right, Cece, we're going to move to you now for your next query letter.
3: Yes, Cece. As an avid listener of The Shit No One Tells You About Writing, I have enjoyed hearing the feedback you give to submitters of Books with Hooks. In reviewing your manuscript wishlist profile, I was excited to find that you are looking for books featuring morally ambiguous protagonists, and you enjoyed the books The Vanishing Half and The Night Circus, which I both count among my favorites of the last five years. Given our similar tastes in reading, I'm excited to share with you my manuscript, Salah Salah. Salah Salah is an upmarket historical fiction of 101,000 words that tells the story of Salah and Silas, mixed-race children of an ex-slave and conscripted Confederate soldier. Ideal readers would include fans of Brit Bennett's The Vanishing Half and Alexander Cheese's The Queen of the Night. It is organized in a framed plot and explores themes of race, sexuality, justice, and privilege. Silas, passing as a white U.S. Marshal, once reveled in the excitement of serving justice to the clearly defined outlaws. But as he realizes the perpetrator of his most elusive case is his own darker-skinned twin sister, he begins to question his position in what justice truly means. Salah, who cannot pass as white, is eager to break the constraints of her sex and coloring and will stop at nothing, even murder, to gain notoriety as a vaudeville performer. But her targets are not innocent, wayward husbands, heartless men, exploitative bigots. In freeing these men from their lives, Salah not only frees herself, but the hearts and lives of the women they have wronged. Over the course of a decade and a half, Salah and Silas's paths. Cross a number of times, the same questions always permeating when they meet. Will Silas allow Salah to walk free? Will Salah allow Silas's true parentage to stay hidden? All truths revealed will surely mean the ends of their lives, for one metaphorically, for the other literally. I am the author of the novel The Valley of Sage and Juniper, which Kirkus Review called a riveting tale of impressive siblings battling oppression. A constant practitioner of all things writing, I attended Utah State University, where I received my bachelor's in English, creative writing, and an MFA from Roosevelt University. And my shorter work has been featured in the Naciona Andana, the Lindenwood Review, a minor magazine, and Scribble Lit. Along with my husband and son, I now live in Washington State, where I teach English composition and literature at Pierce College. As per the guidelines, I have attached the first five pages of my manuscript below. Shay Galloway.
2: Thank you, Cece. Tell us how long that query letter is and what you thought of it.
3: So this is 443 words long. It is a really strong query letter. The premise is really interesting. I love stories about twins. So again, I'm always here for those stories. So, okay, real talk. The job of a query letter is to make me want to read the book. And the query letter is doing its job because after I read it, I was like, I cannot wait to read those pages. So great job. However, because you know our goal in the podcast is to make sure that strong work can be even stronger, I will say that the paragraph that starts with over the course of a decade and a half is reading a little vague. I would prefer to get specifics on how the plot escalates leading up to the major dramatic question instead of this bird's eye view of their character journeys. So if you can find a way to elevate that, I would. Also, and I'm mindful that this is a CC thing, I don't like that you kind of told us that one of them is going to die, right? Like you said that one of them, their life, their, their life is going to end metaphorically and the other one literally. And I was like, that feels like a spoiler. Maybe it's not. Maybe there's like a catch or a twist, but I I would not want to know that. Did not ruin it for me at all. But I just didn't want to know that. And you know, as a final note, I will say I love it when queering writers include their social media handles on their signature. It's by no means mandatory, but I love it. I always look people up. So thank you for sharing.
2: Thank you, Cece. Now let's move to the pages. Give us a quick summary and tell us what you thought.
3: We have a timestamp, July 16th, 1901. So is getting off a train and noticing how the platform has changed since the last time she was there 15 years ago. She asks a clerk about the next train north, and he gives her an exorbitant price, but she doesn't complain. She just pays the amount. Since the train doesn't leave for another two days, she exits the station and walks to a hotel, noticing how much Wyoming has changed in her absence. When she arrives at her lodgings, the clerk suggests that she go elsewhere because this is an expensive place, but she opens her purse, showing how much money she has inside, making it clear that she can afford it. He insists that she should go elsewhere, and she tells him that she knows the owner and that they have a kinship between them. Through interiority, she thinks to herself, how much more could she imply this man's employer was a Negro without coming right out and saying it? That's a quote from the book. She debates whether to give him her real name or not and concludes that it's probably okay, that probably enough time has passed. She enters an eatery, hoping they won't turn her away because of the color of her skin. People recognize her. They gush about having seen her on stage and how amazing she is. That's what happens.
2: And what did you think about the pages?
3: So overall, really strong. The scene work is excellent. I could picture the protagonist making her way through the city she just arrived in. She's moving a lot, and yet I was never confused about the plot. I was never lost in the scene. In fact, I was very clear on who, what, where, all these nuts and bolts have seen. The writing is also super polished. I will say that I think there's room to develop the protagonist's interiority and emotionality even further, and I'll give you examples. So we get her thoughts on how the city has changed for the past 15 years, which is excellent and very believable because that's exactly how the human brain works, right? You arrive at a place that you haven't been to in 15 years, you note the changes. But we don't get her thoughts comparing it to Denver, which is where she was before. Is it bigger? Is it smaller? And a key element to writing interiority is remembering humans compare all the time. Another example, she's spending quite a bit of money, but we don't get her feelings on that. Money is something that triggers feelings and characters. I'm not sure people realize this, but it's true. For example, if she grew up with a lot of money versus not a lot of money, her reactions would be differently. If she grew up with not a lot of money, even though she might have a lot of money now, parting with those dollars might still pain her. She might still have the memory of how painful it is to spend money. Or if she grew up with plenty, she might hear her best friend's voice in her mind, teasing her that she's spoiled. Because as an adult, she's gained enough perspective to know that not everybody grows up with as much as she did. My point is that details like that do come up in a person's thoughts when they're spending money. And all you need is a few words to weave those in, especially in the case of this protagonist, because she is having to overspend in order to belong. She had to give the clerk even more money in order to get a train ticket. She had to give the hotel clerk more money so that he would allow her to stay there which is obviously not okay, but it's something that she had to do because of the story. So final example, when she was recognized inside the the restaurant, we didn't get visceral emotions. We did get a sharp specific on her facial expression, which was great. Please keep that. But we didn't get access to what was underneath. I don't know whether she was terrified of being recognized or proud or maybe both or something else. And I want to know, I would want those details to help bring the character even more to life. I did mark various moments throughout the text, so the author and our subscribers will be able to see my specific questions and suggestions. But to wrap it up, I'll say I was hooked. I want to read more. So if you're listening, please send me your full manuscript because this was really good and I'm very excited to read.
2: Ooh, a ringing endorsement from Cece. We don't get those very often. So well done, you.
3: Okay, so Carly, now will you read us our final query letter?
2: Dear Ms. Waters, I have hoovered up every show and all your tips since a student on my master's course in creative writing recommended the podcast. Thanks team for everything you do. You revealed an appetite for Netflix's The Crown in the last episode of 2022. My novel is set in a speculative future where the British monarchy draws power from an electorate. And recently at a workshop, an agent said she had never read anything like this in a novel before in a good way. And I thought it might interest you too. National Service is an 82,000 word YA thriller. It shares the tone and unsentimental narration of Jenny Fagan's The Panopticon, with themes reminiscent of Megan Angelo's followers, interspersed with the clue-littered transcripts of Robert Cromier's I Am The Cheese. On National Service, Artie Daniels learns that the ruling democratic monarchy plans to tighten its grip on the nation. Every subject has a palm device, the biological successor to the smartphone, and every subject is threatened by a new update that would give the demonarchy the power to control motor functions. Working with the activist group Petrichor, Artie attempts to blow the whistle to the nation. However, he is caught, arrested, and sent to the Diamond Prison, where he counts down the 28 days to his trial. Artie is the only person who can reveal the truth about the update. His late father, a data miner, was the programmer who both invented it and left Artie behind as a living backdoor. With the gallows rope swinging outside his window, Artie must escape to save his life and the country. But nobody has ever escaped from the diamond before In national service, Artie recounts the actions leading to his imprisonment and his plans to fight against a system that killed his father and threatens never seen before oppression. A failed escape or a guilty verdict at the trial means certain death, and Artie has to decide whether dying for a cause is a price he's willing to pay. Shortlisted for the Bridport Prize, my writing has appeared in journals and magazines in the UK. I'm the editor of a football fanzine and newsletter shortlisted as the Football Supporters Association's Fanzine of the Year and Media Fan of the Year. I'm a speech writer who, outside of work, enjoys reading and writing about working class characters who speak with real voices. Would you be interested in reading more? Best wishes, Sam.
3: All right. And what did you think of that query letter
1: and what was the word count?
2: All right. So this one comes in at 402 words. Okay. So we start off with... An agent says they've never read anything like this before. This is a really bold way to start a query letter because number one, when somebody says they haven't read anything like this before, like you wrote in your query bracket in a good way. Sometimes that means there's a reason nobody's read something like this before, or obviously everybody hopes and wants to be the exception to the rule. I actually do think this is a really good idea. So I do actually think you live up to the hype here, but just letting everybody listening know this isn't the type of thing that everybody can use in Query letter. It's pretty bold, right? Okay, so the next thing I want to come back to is the idea that this is YA. I am not convinced that this is a YA book, and I'll get into it a bit more in the pages, but there's just, I don't know, there's nothing about this that that says it's really YA to me. I'm just trying to scroll here to make sure I've got this right, but I don't actually believe we ever get this character's age. So what about this? Again, what about this is YA? If, if we don't actually even know how old he is, what about the concept makes it young adult? I don't know. I feel like this is a pretty sophisticated book and not to say that YA is not sophisticated. I just think it also does have some crossover appeal. So. It is one of those books that potentially could go a lot of different ways. I think this requires a really great agent and a really great editor to kind of shape this into what it what it's going to become. Because some books might start as YA and evolve into adult fiction or starts as an adult novel and eventually through working on the book, it, it reveals itself to be YA. So I think this, this project is still in the, the discovery phase. I don't really think that I have a really clear sense that this has to be one way or the other. Another thing that tells me we're in the discovery phase is the comps. They're quite old. two of them are really old, and one of them is adult fiction. So really nothing about this again says YA in terms of in terms of the comps. Another thing I think this query letter needs to pay attention to is essentially in each paragraph, we are saying the same thing. We're just saying it in a slightly different way. We're not always elevating with each paragraph. So I would, I would potentially rewrite this from beginning to end, not because it's bad, but because I think you can do a better job of, Framing the central problem of the query of the book, and then telling us the information that we need to know, because I don't know. I, I feel like it's potentially out of order or it just doesn't build suspense, I think, in a way that it could because again, i I do think it's I do think it's a really a really interesting project. I did find some spelling errors here and there that I noted. so those are just some things to pay attention to.
3: So what happens in those opening pages, and what did you think of them?
2: All right. So we start with a prologue that is called One Day to Trial that introduces us to the fact that our character has done something to land himself in jail. Then we go back, chapter one starts. So we go back 28 days, is where we're starting, 28 days that's leading up to the trial. And we learn about his life before that he is in trouble. We know that. And we learn about what it's like to have the tracking device implanted into his hand, that everybody's kind of going along with it. We get a lot of his anger and his vitriol at the situation. We also learn that his kind of hand device was shut down when he was caught and sent to prison. And that's where we end up.
1: And how was the execution?
2: All right. So I actually really like this prologue as a concept. This is exactly the type of prologue that I like, right? It's essentially a frame narrative. We have our one day to trial. And then, so we know where we are. We know it's very intense. And then we kind of go back to figure out how we got here. In fiction, to me, this is the best type of prologue because- you get us excited. We actually, we are still one day to trial. It's not like day of trial. I think that would be the wrong prologue. We're one day to trial. This is the right prologue (laughs) because there's still things that the reader is not going to know by the time they make it to where we meet up when these two storylines kind of meet up. So this is exactly the right type of prologue. Well done. Again, I call this a frame narrative because we're kind of framing the story at the beginning. And then, again, we're going to work our way up to this as if it's a frame of a picture frame. So I think this is great. The first line is people like us don't change the world. So I think this book overall has really incredible energy because it's angry. And I think if there's anything that's going to make this a YA novel, I think it's the anger of this character. I still don't really know how old this character is, which I think is is a bit of a hurdle here. I also think we need to cut back on the swearing. There's a lot of F-bombs. I don't, I really don't have a problem with F-bombs personally, but the YA audience will. And so it's just something to, to think about and be conscious of if you, for anybody, right? If you're going to be using swear words, the more you use them, the less powerful they become. And so If you're gonna use a swear word, you have to use it meaningfully and purposefully because the sprinkling of F-bombs, I think there's probably five on one page, it tells me this is a really angry young man, a really angry young man. And I i don't know. I just don't think we need to hammer it home with that many with that many swear words. Another thing, now that we move into chapter one, which is 28 days to the trial, I, th- I think we're just moving around way too much in time. I really would like to get settled where we are, settled kind of in the prison, understand the prison system. And then eventually we can sprinkle in some backstory. But on the first page, we're learning about his father and his house and his 14th birthday and, and so many different things uh, that I think we just, we just don't need, we just don't really need to know. And I think that we could think about other ways, other ways to sprinkle that in later. There's a lot of really good lines. I think we have, a, we have a really good sense of like where in London this is. Cause he says how big the tower is and how tall it is. And out a certain window, he knows the direction of the view. I think all of that is really good overall, not only the swearing, but the slang, there's a lot of slang because I think it's meant to sound kind of like just work in class, right? Which we talked about in his query letter. And I don't have a problem with that at all, but I think it's overdone. And again, just like swear words, slang words also have to be used sporadically so that again, we get the full weight of, of everything. And they're even better used in dialogue than they are in exposition because then again, it's the interaction between our characters. So there's some really great lines here. One of my favorite lines is about the concept of like the prison doors aren't locked. And it's because they're being tracked all the time. So why do the doors need to be locked if we're tracked all the time? Which is like a really interesting, sophisticated thought about how we also, all of us travel around the world, wherever we are with our cell phones. And so it's it's, it's planting some really interesting themes and thoughts. Obviously, a huge nod to Panopticon as a concept. So I think it's interesting. I'm just not convinced it's YA.
3: Well, I'm sure you've given the author a lot to think about. Now I am also convinced it's not YA. Okay, so that's it for today's Books with Hooks. We survived without Bianca. Bianca, you must come back because we're not always on our game like we were today. Sometimes we're hot messes. I'm complimenting ourselves.
2: And yeah, and thank you, everyone. My youngest son starts kindergarten this year. I can't believe it. One of the tricky things though about my kids being in French immersion school and me not having French as a language myself is worrying about how we're going to assist with homework as they get bigger. Other language apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of a one-hour private tutoring session. But with Rosetta Stone, you enjoy a lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. And right now we have a special offer for you guys that is 50% off.
0: Today's guest is a lifelong maritimer relocated from Halifax, Nova Scotia to Southern Ontario in 2016 with her family. It was at that time when she decided to finally pursue her lifelong dream of becoming a published author. Using her own life experiences as a bisexual polyamorous woman who has survived her fair share of adversity as inspiration, her essays have been published in major publications such as Flair, Today's Parent and Runner's World. As someone who has openly battled mental issues her whole life, she was inspired during the isolation of the pandemic to launch her own show, Dear Lonely Writer, a podcast that aims to remove the stigma surrounding the emotional labor that come with the process of writing before, during, and even after the book deal. Her debut memoir Crying Wolf arrives on shelves March 22nd which follows her difficult road to recovery after a violent sexual assault with disbelievers at every turn due in part to her non-traditional lifestyle. In her minimal free time she spends it with her three sons Menagerie of Pets which includes a duck (laughs) named Dave at their home in Georgina Ontario. It's my pleasure to welcome Eden Boudreaux. Eden welcome to the show.
4: Thank you so much for having me. This is so exciting.
0: And for our listeners, I've been on Eden's podcast, which was absolutely amazing. So if you haven't checked out Dear Lonely Writer, please do so. We've got the details in the show notes to find it easy for you to access. Right, Eden, so let's talk about Crying Wolf. This was such a tough, tough read. When I read a book that I race through and that is incredibly well written, I normally say to people it was such a joy to read. Obviously, this is a tough book. It's a tough book to read. It must have been incredibly difficult to write. Can you take us through that?
4: Yeah, for sure. One of the things I always say is that I never wanted to write this book, that I needed to write this book. And that doesn't mean that I didn't want to write. I always wanted to be a writer. But when I began writing Crying Wolf, it was a bit of a selfish endeavor. It was for therapy. It was for my recovery. It was for something to take all of the awfulness that was kind of coiled up inside and put it somewhere. And then it became this kind of light at the, it sounds a little cliche, but this kind of light at the end of the tunnel, it became this kind of source of strength for myself to be able to put not only the experience on the page, but so many things that had happened in my life leading up to that moment that I had either overlooked or kind of pushed aside and really kind of just assumed was part of life being raised as a woman in Canadian culture. And it really gave me a space to sort through a lot of that world and that life and the recovery as well. So when I was writing it, it was definitely a difficult process. And there were a lot of times that I sat back and said, if I did not have a contract, I don't know if I would continue doing this. But not only the difference that I saw in myself, but when I was beginning to get feedback from readers who had read my previously published essays that were about my recovery as well, and people who heard about the book coming in, and just having them reach out and say, like, thank you, or it's nice to know I'm not alone. And that was a real driving force to, to push through to the finish line of, of writing this book.
0: Yeah, when I chatted with Jesse Thistle, who wrote From the Ashes, what we were talking about was it's hard enough to sit down by yourself and write about this kind of trauma, but then a book goes out into the world and you get interviewed by people and there are book clubs who want to discuss the things in your novel. So it becomes triggering because you're reliving this trauma over and over. It's not just the day you sat down to write it on the page. Um, And he was saying that memoirists need a whole other level of emotional support built into promoting the novel and, and years to come afterwards. Is that something that you've had to give some thought to as well?
4: Oh yes, for sure. I mean, it, it was one of the driving forces in why I started my own show, Dear Lonely Writer, because I mean, you have the support of your family. If you're lucky, I will say, you know, if you're lucky, like myself, you have the support of family or friends who have supported you through maybe your recovery, if you're searching for justice, that kind of thing. But there's a whole other level when you decide to go public with something like this, or you decide to share a story about violence, especially sexual violence and sexual trauma. I mean, there's people who say, why are you doing it? Why are you putting yourself through that? And so I really, really had to surround myself with other writers who understood what it was like whether they wrote nonfiction or they wrote fiction or they wrote poetry but they understood what it was like to take such a raw vulnerable part of yourself and put it on the page and then ask the world to accept it and love it as much as you do and that was what got me through it because if i hadn't had some of the people in my circle that i do now to reach out to it two in the morning when I'm going over edits and I'm thinking like, why am I doing this? Who wants to hear my story? Who am I to tell my story? What's the point? I, I genuinely don't think a lot of people like myself who tell very difficult stories would make it to having the the finished book. You You can't be the only champion for yourself because at times you're just not strong enough.
0: Yeah, I tell my creative writing students when writing fiction that writing means making yourself vulnerable even we tell ourselves that we're lying as fiction writers, right? We make shit up, but you're still tapping into very vulnerable feelings and life experiences, etc. And even more so for the memoirist. I want to chat a bit about something that we get quite a bit of questions about. So we're in the middle of our deep dive workshop series, and Jane Friedman presented on industry trends. And a lot of the memoirists were a bit disappointed to see that memoir sales are down and mostly the memoirs that are being sold are like your Prince Harry memoirs and celebrity memoirs etc etc but here we are discussing your memoir that went out into the world so can you give us a bit of a understanding of that journey to publication? Because you said earlier, if you didn't have a contract, you wouldn't have finished it. So I'm assuming you didn't write the book before you sold it, etc. So so can you give us a bit of an understanding of how that process looked?
4: For sure. I have a bit of an unconventional journey to publication that I like to preface that I am the exception to the rule. But in saying that, I also like to say that I'm here entirely out of spite because I was told by so many <laughs> that I couldn't do it. I was actually in the beauty industry for a decade and I grew up in a very low income home and university was just not an option. I dreamed of going to King's College in Halifax and and studying the classics and becoming a writer, but it simply wasn't something that was in the stars for me at the time. So when I started writing, I actually started out writing personal essays, because I had a writer friend who said, you've got a story to tell, you've got a voice, you you, you need to start small. And that is how I actually worked on getting a style and a voice that I personally think is what drew my publisher to me in the first place. I sort of honed that narrative style. I think oftentimes we think of personal essays and we think of memoir as just like long form blogs. But to get a publisher interested in a memoir these days, I agree. If you're not a juggernaut, like Harry or Oprah, it is hard to get the attention. And I remember distinctly, going to a writer's conference and asking a very well-known Canadian writer, what do I have to do to get a memoir seen? What do I have to do to query it? And them telling me, oh, well, if you don't have 20,000 Instagram followers, it's not going to happen. So work on your platform and, and that kind of thing first. And I'll be honest, it was really bad advice because I spent a huge period of the next year focused on my Instagram account and my Twitter and not focused on writing. And after I spent a period of time writing personal essays and getting feedback that people really enjoyed hearing my raw, really honest style of writing and stories, I actually hired a creative writing mentor, Chalene Knight. And she's a terrific author herself. She's also an agent now, but she is also a writing mentor. And she not only went over the pages that I had, the few kind of like cobbled together pieces of a story that I wanted to tell, but she set out kind of a plan for me, a roadmap of how to get to a finished proposal for my memoir. Because we both knew that many memoirs can be written on your own over a long period of time, but sometimes it takes accountability. So having someone to say, I want to see some pages. And it takes having other people believe in your story and say, this is needed. We know this is wanted for you to be able to say, okay, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to put my butt in the chair, like you say, and I'm going to get to work. So Shalene and I worked together for about six months to put together a really, really strong proposal for my memoir. And I thought about sending it out to traditional publishers because who doesn't want their debut book to be with one of the big six? But reality was they weren't interested in the story that I wanted to tell. I didn't want to have to water anything down to make it more commercialized there's nothing wrong with doing that and my next books will probably be that way if i you know if i want to sell to a commercial crowd but i knew that this story needed to have a really strong feminist undertone i knew that it had to be really really uncomfortably honest to tell the story that i wanted to tell and so i started looking for small press publishers Because very often we shy away from small press because it's not as much money. It's not as big of a team. Maybe they don't have as wide a reach, we feel like, within uh, media or the industry, advertising, marketing, that kind of thing. But the difference is, is that small presses really, truly believe in every single author that they bring on. They only publish so many authors per year. And so every single one of them is really quite carefully chosen. And when I reached out to my publisher, Book Hug Press in Toronto, one of the main reasons was because they are a feminist press that very openly advertises that they want to tell the untold stories. And yeah, so we went through the process then of, I sent it to Hazel and Jay Milar, who are the publishers there, few months back and forth of them reading the proposal and reading some chapters and then they sent it out to one of their editors uh, that they have on staff and she read it and she said you have to get this book right now and so that was that's how it came to be to to come into the hands of book hug Amazing. And
0: it's so important that we have these kinds of presses, because if we only having these big publishers who are only publishing books that they know are going to be huge commercial successes, and they aren't prepared to take risks, like you say, with that raw honesty, etc., we wouldn't have books like this. So, so I'm incredibly grateful to the indie presses who are, who are putting out such brilliant, brilliant work. All right. So I want to chat a bit, Eden. We say on the podcast when we get submissions from memoirists that the problem with so many of the memoir submissions that we get is they read like someone's journal right? It reads like stream of consciousness. Like you say, maybe a blog post, somebody's just sitting down and going back and thinking about things that happened in their life. And we say as much as possible that you should really try to make your memoir read like fiction. We're not saying make shit up, have car crashes and chases, etc. We're saying when it comes to structure, when it comes to conflict, tension, pacing, when it comes to character arc, try and stick as close to possible the conventions of fiction. So how was it that you found the story? And what is your take in terms of, is it necessary to write memoir like that? Or can you just do stream of consciousness?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a very widely regarded like surety about memoir that it's supposed to be kind of this like long rambling train of thought of memories and, and flashbacks in time and things like that. And while I think maybe in the literary space, there is a market for that kind of very narrative, poetic journey through someone's life, I think... We need to go back to our Alice Munro's and even further back to Jack Kerouac, even though ignoring the problematic behavior, the, this kind of storytelling within memoir is what really, I think, pulls the readers in and keeps them engaged. So when I was writing, the first couple drafts definitely were very kind of taking pinpointed memories in time putting those on the page i'm all about kind of talking about writing like growing a plant or like pregnancy and having a baby and like it starts with a seed everything starts with a seed of an idea and you can't be afraid to flesh that out but like you said we have to have that push and that pull that rise and that fall of action And so, for myself, when I was writing, one of the big things I did was I kind of made this document of almost individual little scenes. And I went through what felt like the most important scenes in my story. And then from there, I was able to take those and I was able to pluck them and put them into where I felt like they were engaging and they pulled my reader back in. That doesn't mean that I adjusted my timeline. Nothing was changed in the sequence of events, but having like, let's say one full chapter of flashbacks to my childhood is kind of jarring. Or if we're talking about telling a story that's filled with trauma, we can't have the front end of the book loaded with traumatic event after traumatic event after traumatic event without the reader saying, I have to give up. I can't, I can't. I, I need some lightness. I need some brevity. It's like when we're watching hbo shows and i can only handle so many episodes that leave me sobbing with tears (laughs) they have to have that kind of filler episode to bring up your spirit and bring you back into the story and with memoir we have to think of it that way that doesn't mean like you said you can't make shit up but it does mean that you have to sit down and you have to say okay where is the moment of light in my life during this time And I think what happens is it involves a lot of introspection that is difficult for memoir writers. And it was difficult for myself. I mean, I can't count how many times my editors had to say, okay, you're giving me the facts of what happened. You're giving me the play-by-play, but I need you to dig deeper. I need you to go into the internal emotion of this moment. And what's funny, sometimes in our darkest moments, we think of times in our childhood when we were happiest. Or we think of an inside joke between us and our best friends. And those are little pinpoints in telling a story, a narrative nonfiction story that can help the reader to have like, like take a breath in the story. And that is how we need to think about structure. When we think about memoir is these moments where the, the the reader can come up for air and have a light moment That's, I think, some of the most important things to remember when structuring a memoir.
0: Yeah, that just got me thinking now. I've been sort of watching The Last of Us. There was one episode that was just these zombified people coming for them time and again, and I was on the edge of my seat, and I was biting my nails, and I was like, holy shit, I can't deal with any more of this. And then the next episode was wonderful because it was just this beautiful love story. And we were just able to regroup and go, okay, here's the joy in this terrible world that is full of zombified people. We've got this lovely love story. And then the next episode, you can move on to people chasing each other and almost being killed. So that kind of pacing is important. When it came to structuring this book, you dove right into the sexual assault from virtually page one. And I imagine that that must have been a decision you took, because even though that was technically the inciting incident, if we think about a novel, you have an inciting incident, a key event, etc. With memoir, you can structure things totally different it doesn't have to be in a linear way and that's something I think a lot of memoirists also you know they go okay I'm going to start here and I'm going to end here and go exactly in that timeline but you can jump around with that was that a decision you made from the very first that that is where you were going to begin or was it like puzzle pieces that you have to shift around and see where the best starting point was?
4: So, it's funny you say that because it was not where I was going to start, actually. Um, Because a few of my essays that I had written prior to the book started in that space. And I worried that it was very jarring for someone to open up the book and that is the first thing that they read. And I also worried about perception, right? Because this story isn't just about someone who is recovering from sexual assault, this is a story of someone who is in a non-monogamous marriage. And it is a little trendier and a little more popular now, but even at the time when I was writing it, this is a very non-traditional lifestyle. And I've already on my essays received feedback from people who were very critical of my lifestyle and very, you know, putting the shame and the blame on me that it was my fault and because I stepped outside my marriage and things like that. So for a long time, the beginning of the book actually dove into my marriage and and kind of gave this explanation as to why I was going on this date and who I was and and what that circumstance behind it was so almost that I almost felt like I had to make the reader sympathetic to me before we even went into that and then I sat down and I kind of thought but that's not fair because it doesn't matter what relationship I'm in it doesn't matter if I was in a non-monogamous marriage, or if I was a divorcee, or if I was a single mom, or if I was a widow, these crimes happen to everyone. It does not, it's not picky about who sexual trauma happens to. So having that precursor almost felt like I was giving an excuse that I was kind of justifying it. And so when I went back and started going through my drafts again, I actually picked up a book that you talk about very often, Save the Cat. And I started looking through how this book talks about structuring. And one of the things that always stuck with me was talking about the opening image. Because I too, you know, whether it's writing in fiction or nonfiction, always thought about inciting incident and immediate reaction. But thinking about having an opening image in a book, it made it feel very thematic like watching a movie. And those are some of the books that I've enjoyed the most, that you open it up and you start reading and you almost have this image burned into your mind. And so for me, it felt really important for that opening image to be mid-attack, not even starting in the night of the attack, but mid-attack so that the reader would be immediately immersed into that fear, And to that moment of realizing that this was when my old life ended and when my new life, whatever it was, was beginning. And there didn't need to be an explanation of who I was or what my circumstance was or what my lifestyle was, because it didn't matter. It was an atrocity happening to a human. And so for memoirists, I think that that is a really, really important part of telling especially a difficult or traumatic type story. We talk about in fiction too, that that first line is some of the most important. Those first couple pages are some of the most important. For me in a memoir, the opening image, what is seared into the mind of the reader and keeps bringing them back to the story, even if they have to put it down for a bit, even if they have to come back to it, I think that that is the most important part. And though even though it was the most difficult and even though a big part of me worried that people would not be able to get through it and they would just put it aside, it felt like it was the most important place to start.
0: Yeah. It felt very intentional when I read it and it was perfect, the perfect place to begin. Because like you say, if you'd backtracked and given all of these justifications, it undermines everything that this memoir is about. So For our listeners, again, that kind of intentionality is so incredibly important. It shouldn't be, oh, well, I'm starting here because why not? It should be, this is why I'm starting here. You need to kind of defend those choices. Eden, we're at the end of our time. I don't know how that happened. It's been such a joy chatting with you. For our listeners, we're putting Crying Wolf on our bookshop.org affiliate page. You buy it there. You support Eden. You support an independent bookstore. And you support the podcast. Eden, we wish you much success with this. It's so incredibly important that these stories are told and you are doing amazing work by telling them. Yeah, we just wish you so much success with this.
4: Thank you so much, Bianca. I really appreciate it. And thank you for giving me the platform to talk about it.
0: And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes.